All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah, it's between Habakkuk and Zechariah and the Minor Prophets. And so uh, we will be in verses 1, 1 through 3 this morning. And as you are finding your way there, let me give you the key truth that I want us to walk away with this morning. It's this. Our sin has deadly consequences for creation, all of it, given our relationship to it as God's chosen stewards. Let me say that again. Our sin has deadly consequences for creation, given our relationship to it as God's chosen stewards. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Zephaniah 1, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. While this is a hard word, we still say, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, one thing that you could do to help yourself out for the book of Zephaniah is go back and read 2 Kings 21 through 25. That is a lot of the historical circumstance and consequence for which Zephaniah is stepping into. So you have an opportunity to actually read from 2 Kings and be able to apply it and use it. Uh, and so that would be helpful to you as, as by way of just an opening comment. But the question that I have for us that's, that's really important to how we're going to understand what God is doing, not just here in this text, but in the book of Zephaniah, is what role does creation play in God's redemptive story? Now, if most of us are honest, we have some opinions about creation, right? Like how old the earth is. We've got opinions about what those days mean, those chapters of Genesis 1 and 2, but that's not what I'm talking about here. This is actually recognizing that Creation plays a role in the revelation of God and who he is, his character, right? The, the way we refer to it is it's natural revelation. It reveals that there is a creator. Now, we must confess that what creation can't do, which is why we need the other things to help us out, is apologist and get to Jesus. You're not going to become an arborist and necessarily get to Jesus directly. But what creation does do is play a part in the entire symphony of God's revelation of himself in our world. Much like the law, it points past itself. It becomes very dangerous when we point just to it, right? We saw this in Romans chapter 1. Remember that the Gentiles were unable to say, we didn't know. Why? Because of creation, because creation testifies to the creator-creature distinction. And if you remember, one of the things that got them in trouble is they took from creation and fashioned idols and worshiped the creation itself. Much like with those who worship the law, it got them in trouble. It points past itself to the God who created it. The seasons help us to understand, like right now, uh, spring is coming. Right? You can see it if those of you who garden, stuff is starting to kind of creep up out of the soil. But see, there's something interesting about this. We want to get excited. We want to, we want to go ahead and start planting stuff, right? 
Because resurrection's right around the corner. Oh, but the death-dealing frost is also right around the corner. In fact, next Sunday is going to be below 30. So it's going to have an impact. But what's interesting, this happened to me last year. I was so devastated that my chaste trees got hit by that killing frost that was just seemed unrelenting day after day after day, just dropping into the low 30s, into the low 20s. And everything on it was dead. And I thought, this tree's dead. And I almost cut it down, both of them. These trees are meaningful to me for a whole nother reason. Uh, and so uh, they're connected actually to J.W. Chandler, for those who know him. And so I waited. I was like, okay, all right, I, I'm going to see what happens. And life made its way back through. And those trees bloomed so beautifully. And again, it's a bit of a lesson about what God does in our lives. How often do you have that springtime moment where everything's feeling good and then a killing frost comes in and batters you down? What happens next? Which way do you run? Do you rise again, right? So creation is very important to us as God's people. And even more importantly is for you to think about how God has used creation in in your life to display his redemption. I remember one time when Susan and I were at one of the ends of ourselves. Uh, The situation with our children was so insanely hard. Some friends of ours were kind enough to loan us their house uh, up in Raven Gap, and it's got this incredible view of this valley and these mountains, and there was this mist, and there was a particular psalm that I was reading. And and again, this testifies to the role of creation, ongoing role of creation. If you read the psalms, creation shows up an awful lot in fact, it was in Psalm 8 this morning. And so creation is in me. So I asked Susan, I said, Susan, would you just read it out loud? And as I stared down through this valley and I heard the words of the psalm uh, read out loud, it was, it was just beautiful. And God was gracious. And though I was at the end of myself, some gas got put back in the tank and we could, we could come down off the mountain, descend back into the valley that was our lives and continue for the glory of God. You may have similar stories in which God uses those types of things to speak to you in a variety of ways. And we are stewards of those things and that relationship of stewardship is very important because what I think happens to us when we hear God's word of judgment is we hear that very individualistically instead of realizing no God's judgment has come upon you because you are failing to live out your mission, which, as we're going to see in Zephaniah, has implications for creation, God's people, and the world, right? Think about how our lack of evangelism, our unwillingness to be missional, affects the eternities of the rest of the world how it affects how coming generations see the church. This is all tied together, and it's important for us to hear it in that way. So as we step into the text, let me read just the first verse and give you some background. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, first and foremost, what we see, this is not Zephaniah's word. It is the word of the Lord that has come to him to, as a steward, delivered to the people. Now, this is particularly dangerous for him for one broad reason and one very specific reason. The broad reason is that, according to God's law, if you deliver a false prophecy, meaning it doesn't come true, you are to be killed. Now, you may say, well, why would anybody prophesy? But now, think, for example, what he's prophesying it ain't even fun. 
So what he's prophesying is the destruction of the very people of God and the judgment of the surrounding nations, the destruction of creation itself in some measure. And so, and so there would be people who would be rooting against him that this wouldn't come true. So anytime someone would speak on behalf of the Lord and it not come true, they were to be killed. In addition, and this is really important, I think most of you probably have heard that somewhere along the way, but even more important is if someone speaks a prophecy that leads people away from the Lord. Now, here's what's implied in that. They actually can come true. We have always hoped that every false prophecy just wouldn't come true, right? And that's how you would know. Uh-uh. Right? Think about in the New Testament, there are, there are people who can cast out demons who are of the demonic order, part of the principalities and powers of darkness. They can perform miracles. They can heal. The question is not whether or not you can predict things happening. The real question, and this is the most important for the people of God, does it exalt the Lord our God? Now, that becomes insanely important for those who are hearing the prophecy, right? Because we are, if we are honest, enamored with power. We are enamored with somebody's ability to do something amazing, thus the entirety of Hollywood, thus the entirety of, of how we choose our leaders, right? How many times does somebody who is soft-spoken and gentle and really knows what they're doing never gets elected because the other person is, is forked of tongue and promises everything and delivers some things? So we need to recognize that Zephaniah, because he's delivering a prophecy that is not popular, is putting himself firmly in the dock. Secondly, he is from the royal class. He is from the lineage of King Hezekiah. And these other names are part of the royal lineage as well. Now, why is that important? Think about how we tolerate criticism. We sometimes will take it as we see in scripture from some southern farm boy named Amos who rolls north and clearly he just got lost and needs to go back to his farm. Remember, they didn't kill Amos. They let him go. But when you have somebody from your own order, from within critiquing, who has benefited from royalty, who has benefited from opulence, who rises up and says, hey, God is going to sweep you away. That don't get tolerated. So he is, of all of the prophets, in one of the more dangerous positions. The other prophets, most of them don't come from royalty. They don't actually critique from within. The other aspect to the circumstance in which he's speaking is things are going good, right? Josiah, if you remember, is a good king. He comes to power in 640 B.C. and reigns from 640 to 609. In 622, he discovers the book of the law and makes sweet, it's the first real reformation. Like we're pretty arrogant about calling what we know the reformation. No, it's a reformation, but okay. This was the first major reformation among God's people. He takes away all of the things that are causing God's people to turn from the Lord. He runs out all the necromancers. He runs out all the tarot card readers. He runs out all of the people who uh, are producing the National Enquirer of their time, right? He, he runs all that out. And he reinstitutes the Passover and worship, and everything begins to change for the better. They are in a period in which things are good. 
Do you know how unpopular it is to raise your voice and say, hey, I know everything's good, but something is rotten at the core. He is in a difficult position in which he will find himself with no friends, but probably Josiah himself. And in addition to that, the people who are hearing him, which by the way includes us now that we're going to hear from him, are also, uh, there, there's a gravity to the situation because according to Deuteronomy 13, one through five, it is our responsibility as hearers to determine whether or not a prophecy actually points to the Lord. We have a responsibility to lean in and listen and ask and look and see, does this draw us closer? This is not just an Old Testament situation. In Acts chapter 17, there's a group of people called the Bereans. And when the apostles came through, they heard them, they went home, took the scriptures, and made sure that what these apostles were saying fit with the scripture. So this means that one of the key responsibilities of the people of God, which is all of you, is that you be students of God's word. That you know it well enough that when something is off, you are able to say, mm, somebody right. And that we as the leadership should long for you to be that educated, that passionate about God's word, that we would receive you so that we get it right. Because the last thing I would want is to lead you astray from God himself because that has deadly consequences. And so it's very important that we, as we go through this season, we are also leaning in. A second responsibility of ours as hearer and theirs as well is to recognize that according to Isaiah 55, 6 through 9, we are to seek the Lord while he may be found. I think because of some of the actual graces and beneficences that we have in our age, you can, can listen to God's word any hour, any day of the week, which is utterly unique in history. Right? We can, we can go to any podcast. We can, we can listen to the Bible read to us. We have access to all kinds of things. I am suspicious that we have become arrogant because we think, oh, I can find the Lord anytime I want to. As if it were controlled by us instead of the Spirit. You do know that you cannot, no matter how hard you try, find the Lord if the Spirit's not in it. And that should cause us a bit to wonder and tremble. And if you're wondering, where does it say that in the Bible? Esau, for all of his tears, would not be forgiven. That's a troubling passage. But the Lord knows what he knows and understands what he understands and is letting us know that relationally we don't control the gate. So therefore, anytime God's word is being put forward to us, we need to lean in in a posture of humility and say, Lord, speak to me. Speak to us. That should be our posture any and every time we get the blessed opportunity to hear from the Lord our God. And so that is uh, what we are being asked to do. Now let's get to the hard stuff. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, for many of us, when it comes to Old Testament stuff like this, if you're honest, you're like, dude, like calm down a little bit. Is it, we got to sweep away everything? For those of you who are parents, have you ever had that moment when your child was escalating and you reached the end of yourself and you're like, okay, you want to escalate? I can escalate. Let's escalate. Let's get on the escalator. <laughs> 
I'll be at the top. And then your child turns and looks at you like you're crazy. Like you've lost your mind. Like, whoa, chill out. It's not that bad. No, it was just that bad. Seconds ago. I promise you it was for you. But, but I'm different. You're, you shouldn't be doing that. This is a real story, by the way. I didn't just make this up. <laughs> and even if we're honest, we do this with each other at the church. You know, you, you got that, that, that one person or those people who, who rise up and say, hey, should you guys be watching that show? Should you, should you be doing that? Should you, should you be getting more merry of heart than Scripture ought allow? And we're like, calm down. Whoa, kill the buzz here. You're, you're, no, that sometimes is the Lord being gracious to say, you need to think about this. Why? Because nothing is neutral. We oftentimes shout down or shut down prophetic voices because we just don't want to hear it. We don't want to, if we're honest, we just don't even want to be bothered by it. We don't have to think about it. We feel like we have enough to think about just trying to get through life on a regular basis instead of trying to worry about creation or save the world or save the whales or whatever. And so we have it the wrong way around. It's not that God is overreacting. We are underreacting by far. We do not take sin as seriously as God does. In fact, it is evident we don't have the capacity, actually. And praise be to God that he sends prophets. Praise be to God that he sent Jesus, because we'd have never saved ourselves. And so, it's important that when we read a text like this, and you feel it rising within your heart, this desire to go, man, I don't know how we could say thanks be to God for a text like this. You ought to. This is the, the, the warning that you aren't, we aren't, we are struggling to take sin seriously. Because, as we saw in Romans, what is the consequence of sin, period, no matter what level of sin it is? Death. Do you not want a God who understands that die? Which is what he's doing here. Not telling the story. Remember, when the prophets utter this, this is not a newspaper, right? This is not, not, he's not telling the story of what has happened. He's telling the story of what will happen if God's people don't respond. We're going to see, to jump ahead, in chapter 2, which is kind of this beautiful pinnacle of the book of Zephaniah, a call to repentance. There may even be a connection between Zephaniah's name, which means hidden of the Lord, because into he's going to say, repent and hide in the Lord. Be hidden in the Lord so that judgment will pass you by. And so it is very important that we read a text like this, not thinking God needs to calm down, but recognizing we need to step up and take seriously. Because we do live fairly quartered safe lives. Think about your response as you have watched, if you, if you have the stomach for it, what's going on in Ukraine, right? The, 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 a, a residential city is being turned to ash for what? Well, you see here, there's a historic situation going on. They don't care about all that. They're just trying to eat. They're just trying to live their lives just like you and me. Think about if somebody were to firebomb Cobb County. Suddenly, we would say, I ain't tolerating this trash no more. You don't mess with my food supply. 
It's only when it gets close to us sometimes do we take something serious. And this is why the Lord sends somebody's, somebody's uh, to say to us from within and from without, I love you, don't die in your sin. And so he is saying that sin, because it has permeated everything, that everything must be cleansed. Everything must be made new. And then he goes on. And as he goes, what's interesting is what you're going to witness in, in, in a beautiful literary move that is also true, is he's going he's gonna to walk through the undoing of creation. This is Genesis 1 in reverse. I will sweep away man, day six, and beasts, day five and the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea, days three and four. Creation is undone, and why that matters to us, right, is creation is one of the ways in which God declares, as we have said earlier, his presence, and it is one of the key means by which he has granted his provision. If you have a completely synthetic diet, you won't be with us long. Sooner or later, you must eat from the hand of creation that God has provided. And so it is a part of God's ongoing declaration of himself in this world. Now, you're wondering, is Cameron a tree hugger? Ask yourself, what do I hug? Nothing. Much. And trees ain't it. No, this is an issue of recognizing what the Lord uses. Again, we want God to be exalted. Beauty, creational beauty just does that in a way that other things don't. This is one of the great things that I think Tolkien shows, you know, when the powers of darkness are rising up, what are they doing? They are laying the land to waste. If you've ever been in a place that has been laid to waste, it is haunting place turned to ash for whatever reason it has happened, it is chilling. And so we have a responsibility as stewards, which is key to how we're going to understand the rest of this judgment that is going to be played out as he moves not only through creation, but God's people because judgment begins in the house of the Lord and then on to the nations. And this is important that we see our relational role in it. We're not just consumers. Anytime we treat things as a pure commodity that we can do whatever we want with, we are the less human for it. Creation is part of that. And so it is important that we hear this as stern warning, not as newspaper. Now you may wonder, yeah, this is Old Testament. Well, I'm glad you asked. If you would, let's jump ahead as preview for what's coming after Easter to Romans chapter 8. And see how our brother Paul uses creation to help point past itself and actually encourage us. I don't want to leave you with just a word of judgment. I don't want to end on God's going to sweep everything away uh, and just, all right, now let's eat. We need a little buffer in between, and here's the buffer. 
Romans 8, 18 through 25 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, that is an important uh, 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 philosophy. That is an important theology that we should all have. Because if you live in a fallen world, what is guaranteed? You will suffer. If you follow Jesus, does the suffering increase or decrease? It increases. Part of your union with him. It increases because now you've got to care about stuff like creation that you didn't have to care about before. Other people. Your own family. You. God. And so... He gives us something very important to, to, to have as persistent in the Lord. It pales in comparison. No matter the surrounding circumstance, your desire should be to be of the Lord and therefore be an ambassador of reconciliation as part of the remnant to a world that is going to suffer and die. He goes on. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. He just called forth creation as witness. That's an important distinction in Scripture. To serve as a witness is a, is a wonderful role to actually have. And the way the Greek reads here, and I've actually preached on this text before, it says that creation stands on tiptoe, neck outstretched, eagerly anticipating the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. And here's why. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who's he that subjected it? Adam. All who follow in his lineage. This jumps back to Romans 5 for a bit, the difference between Adam and Jesus. But here's good news, though. In hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Did you hear that creation is going to be part of the new heavens, new earth? There will be, and we know this from our sermon series on Revelation chapter 22, a beautiful tree of life in the new heavens, new earth. In fact, there's two of them, one on each side of the river that flows out from under the throne. And the leaves of those trees will be for the healing of the nations. Which is good news, especially when judgment is coming for creation, for us, and for the nations. And so we recognize that this is something that we need to take seriously. This isn't just poetic, metaphorical language. It's real. Spoken poetically. And he goes on, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of death. Is that what it says? No. Childbirth until now. So what did creation know that we didn't? How the story was going to end. Somehow, creation created of the Father for his purpose, as the psalmist talks about, the trees will clap their hands. I don't think trees have hands, but he's speaking to, it testifies to the glory of God. Even under its futility, it still had some measure of hope and recognized that, that what was going on, what's going on, and why is this important for us to know, it ain't death. It's child. 
which means something good is being born, not just that everything is hopeless and we have no hope. He goes on. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So if you are justified in Jesus and indwelt by the Spirit, you have hope. You know how the story is going to end. This should change how you engage politically. This should change how you talk about world events. I would encourage you to read Robbie's letter. The first draft was better. I made him chop out some because I knew y'all would complain about being three pages long. We need to recognize that it should change how we talk about social circumstances. It should allow us to be able to evangelize to those who need it the most instead of thinking, and Romans 12 is going to tell us this, that we are called to speak a word of judgment over people. No, you're not. That is not your calling. And you need to be careful about declaring yourself a prophetic voice based on the warnings. And he goes on. We have been eagerly, uh, uh, we groan, uh, with first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. He means the resurrection, which is what Easter is all about. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For hope for what he sees, for, for he who hopes for what he sees, uh, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's be honest. We've grown impatient. We've grown impatient with this COVID nonsense and reality. We've grown impatient with world events. We've grown impatient with uh, uh, weak leaders and leaders who say they're strong with bombast. I'm tired of, of the fact that we can't seem to, to get anywhere on any of the social issues that are plaguing us and belaboring us this day. We're tired of all the different conversations that go on in petty circumstances, denominationally, cross-denominationally, uh, cross-religiously, cross-town, cross-your-neighbor's yard, We've grown impatient. However, take heart. You can repent. For you have been warned. And part of what you're being warned about is not having hope. We who are of Christ should be the people who are the most creative, the most hopeful, the most humble, the most generous of We have been warned that Part of the reason for judgment coming is our failure to live out the stewardship and mission to which we have been called. You should never read a passage about the judgment of the nations and, and think, good, they finally are getting what they deserve. <laughs> Woe be unto you for uttering such. We should long and cry out for justice. Do not get me wrong. Justice is a necessity because of a fallen world. There is judgment that has to be rendered as a result of things not being the way they're supposed to be. But we should be ambassadors of reconciliation, not reckoning. And so, hear what Ian Duguid says about this passage as a good word to us. 
Zephaniah was not merely writing to condemn his hearers for their sins, however. Rather, he was urging them to flee from the wrath to come and find a safe refuge from the storm while there was still time. Like a tornado warning, the prophet's stark message of the danger of impending death was not designed simply to terrify his hearers, but rather to save their lives. His message has been recorded in the scriptures so that it may have the same impact on us as it was intended to have on his original hearers. The sad end to the story of Judah is that in 586, they were carried off. Josiah died in battle. The next set of kings that came in in a sweep, many of them rising and falling very quickly, did nothing but carry the nation back into its wickedness that Manasseh had started before Josiah. What they were doing was uh, they, were, they were taking advantage of the poor. We're not doing that today, are we? They were sacrificing children on the altar of Baal. Do we have that problem in all? Is abortion not that? Is the way in which we idolize our children not destructive? Those of you like, at least I didn't abort them. Well, there's more responsibility than just that. You're to call them to uh, life in the Lord. They also had temple prostitutes. Do we worship sex at all? Yes, we do, both inside and outside the church. We have the same problems they had. And it came back in spades following the death of Josiah. There were even people who were opposing Zephaniah because they liked to benefit from those things from Manasseh. Many of us oppose it because we are benefiting. So what does the severity of God's judgment signify about the severity of sin and its impact on all who bear his image? That's the question. Not whether or not is God overreacting and does Jesus need to step in and get him to calm down and relax. Do we recognize the severity and the stakes such that we could actually have hope, actually? Like, recognizing the severity increases and helps with the hope. And then how does our sin affect the things we've been called to steward, such as creation? It's all connected. So what a gift it is for us to hear these words from Zephaniah and, and then what we've heard from Ian Duguid and what you've heard from me, that we get to come to the table that says you are hidden in the Lord and judgment passed over you in Christ and fell on him. And it is an empowering thing to us that that resurrection that is longed for in Romans chapter 8 is a current and present unfolding reality because of the spirit in us and the ongoing work of the means of grace. What a gift it is for us to hear a hard word and then be tenderly welcomed by the God hospitable, Jesus the host, to attend to the table that reminds you of who and whose you are, that declares your forgiveness afresh so that you would not forget, so that as you go into a fallen world, you would be a good steward, an ambassador of reconciliation, empowered not just hidden, but shining like a city on a hill. And remember what Jesus said uh, to his friends on the night that he was having the last meal with them. 
Remember, it's interesting, the reinstitution of the Passover, this is the institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, and I love the way he puts it, given for you. It is his gift to us so that we would not be broken under the weight of shame and guilt so that the threat of judgment would not cause us to run from the Lord but run to him and be reminded of who and whose we are. And then at the end of the meal, he took the cup and he raised it up and it was overflowing. It was lavishly filled with his blood for the new covenant, for the forgiveness of our sins, which would empower us to walk in newness of life. What a gift. That we're not just set free, we're empowered. We have been given the first fruits of the Spirit to hope, to declare the good news of the gospel to a world that is perishing.